So um, I have the privilege today to teach on Psalms, all of them. So you guys are pretty seasoned Bible vets here at Calvary Chapel, I've noticed since my time of around a little over two years now. Um, so I'm certain that you've heard a lot of the unique statistics about the Psalms. Um, so I'm going to do something a little outside of the box and have some fun um, audience participation. So just yell it out if you know it, but how many chapters are there in Psalms? Okay. I knew you guys would get that one really quick. So what's the largest book of the Bible? Psalms. You got it. So what's the second largest book of the Bible? Yeah, I heard it. Somebody said it in the back. So what chapter has the most verses in the Bible? That's right. Which one has the least? Ah, uh, one seventeen. Close. How many, how many lines? How many? How, kidding. So there's a lot of uh, instruments uh, mentioned in the Psalms. There's a pipe, a trumpet, a timbrel, which is kind of like a tambourine. There's a harp, a lyre. Um, not like you lied to me. Which the lyre is actually kind of like a harp. Um, there's cymbals, there's stringed instruments, there's our, our voices, our breath. Um, there's one called a psaltery, which is sort of uh, like a lyre, actually. Um, and actually, that's uh, where we get the name Psalms from. So I'm gonna move on to, I have to hit two buttons because I don't have an Apple computer. All right, so this on, uh, on your left is a coin with, uh, it's a Jewish coin um, with a lyre on it, and the one on the right yep. is, is what a lyre looks like. So it looks like a harp. Um, so the lyre was made into a Jewish coin near the start of the Bar Kokhba revolt, um, and it wasn't actually the most important music instrument in, in Jewish rabbinical traditions. It was actually an instrument that was similar called a neville. And I couldn't find any actual pictures of a neville, but something that's close to it, which looks very much like a lyre, is the one on your left here. And you can see the resemblance. And then as time goes by, uh, the harp on the right is one of the first iterations of what a harp actually um, looked like back then. So it was said in Jewish rabbinical tradition that the world was sung into existence to the accompaniment of a perfectly strung 22-stringed neville. The notes produced by the strings would later bring them their 22-letter Hebrew alphabet. The instrument on the right is sort of the closest thing that I could find that would be similar to what David's harp might look like. Um, later, the, the design for the harp, of course, got better and better over time. Um, and I imagine most of our stringed instruments are probably pretty influenced by these original stringed instruments. Um, there's quite a few other things to know about the Psalms um, before we dig in, uh, besides the fun and unique statistics. So most of you know this, and this slide here, I'm going to give you so that you can... Uh-oh, button's not working, Roger. What do I do? There we go. Thank you. I might need you, apparently. Um, so if you want to take a snapshot... You're welcome to, um, but this is how the Psalms are broken up into uh, five books. Um, and the Psalms was written chiefly by David, about 75-ish, um, and several others. Twelve were by Asaph, uh, ten were by the sons of Korah, which were a guild of singers and composers, two by Solomon, Israel's most powerful king, um, one by Moses, um, you guys know Moses, right? 
one by uh, Heman, a wise man, one by Ethan, another wise man, both of them sons, uh, part of the sons of Korah. Uh, the remaining 50 are anonymous. Some are attributed um, in tradition to Ezra, um, and some others of those are probably also David's. Um, something else interesting to me based on the five books is you guys know how in the Bible, um, especially in, in Genesis and some of the more poetry books, there's a lot of threes and sevens and tens. Um, I was listening to a uh, sermon that uh, Chuck Missler gave, and he mentioned in it that if we were to put these five books together, then you would have 70 books of the Bible. That's a seven and a 10. I just found that interesting. Um, there's no implication in scripture um, that that's truly how it should be or anything like that. So I'm not necessarily holding to that, but it's an interesting uh, thing that I found. So who thinks Psalms uh, is a book of songs and praises by show of hands? The ones that raise your hands are correct. And anyone know what else it is? It's a book of poetry. Yeah. So the kind of poetry is a little different than that of our Western culture or even some other cultures, in fact. We're used to, especially here, rhythm and rhyme, and the Psalms aren't actually written exactly like that. They often will be written in a stark contrast with one thing to help describe another thing. The other thing that the Psalms are, are a book of, or it's a, it's a book of prophecy. Um, many of the Psalms anticipate the life, the life of Christ who would come centuries later as the promised Messiah. The name Messiah is a Hebrew name that means anointed one. And it comes from the root word Mashiach, which means to anoint. Um, the Messiah was, taught, uh, was thought to be um, a man with characteristics of God, um, like being free from sin. And most messianic teachings of the time of ancient Judaism were eschatological in nature, referring to the last things. And so here's a list of prophecies within the Psalms um, with their verses to show their fulfillment. I'm going to move that there. I knew I should have used a bigger font. It's hard to tell. Um, so feel free to take a snapshot of this. But um, So I'll go over a few of them. And this isn't all of them, by the way. This is just 10 of them. But uh, Psalms 2-7, uh, God declares him, that's Jesus, to be his, that's God's son. And that's um, corroborated in fulfillment in Matthew 3.17. And so each of those numbers there are corroborated by the numbers to the right. So Psalms 1 is what we get to go over today. Um, this book is the perfect beginning to Psalms uh, because it contrasts, as I was um, alluding to earlier, uh, two ways of the life for man. That's men or women. Uh, that's with God or without. That's the only two ways. Um, so let's all stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, 
but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. God, thank you for uh, the opportunity it is to, today to serve you in this capacity. Um, to be sharing your word uh, with my church family is just an honor. And uh, I pray that you would guide uh, the words and that you would uh, fulfill, um, you would fill the hearts um, of those here with us tonight. So uh, we thank you for your son on the cross in your name. Amen. So I am, you guys will have to forgive my speed because I'm not great with technology. And actually, Roger, can you go to the second? Uh, so you're, you're there, but can you go to the second one that says Psalm 1-1? There's one like six down or something. Perfect. Thank you. So the first psalm serves as a general outline or intro to the rest of the psalms. It's easy to understand and explains how, how and how not to walk as a believer. And it shows that as believers, we are blessed and those that choose the other path, that's the path of darkness, are sure to find misery. It also serves as a prelude to all of what's to come in the rest of the Psalms and the rest of Scripture, for that matter. So let's begin. Now notice the progression of the physical attributes of this verse. So there's walk, there's stand, and then there's sit. It sort of walks you down the path of the unrighteous in a progressive manner. Each action takes uh, a stronger stance away from God. And digging a bit deeper, there are also three ideas of how you might find yourself involved in evil. The counsel, path, and seat. And finally, there's three levels, each increasing in ungodliness of evil. First, there's wicked, then sinners, and finally, scornful. Or um, if you might, you might be reading a different translation that says um, scoffers. Something else interesting here, um, and I gave it its own slide, um, is a few weeks ago I had the opportunity to uh, teach uh, the young adults, and I taught Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, but I noticed something when studying um, Psalms 1-1, and that is that it, it directly correlates so Ephesians 4.17 says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. And check it out. So Psalms 1.1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. And then Ephesians 4.18 says, Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, and then nor stands in the path of the sinners. And then 4.19 says, who being past feeling, that's, that's this idea of what's called a reprobate mind. You're, you're, you're so far into sin, you're steeped into sin so, so boldly against Christ that you don't even feel it anymore. You don't even notice it anymore. Um, and they've given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. And then nor sits in the seat of the scornful. And you'll see how that connects a little, in a little bit here. So back to... The verse. So remember that through the verse, the psalmist is contrasting what we should do by telling us that 
Blessed is the man who chooses not to do the negative things described here. So blessed is the man. The word, we're going to get a good Hebrew lesson today, by the way. The word blessed in the Hebrew is asher, and it comes from the word ashur, or excuse me, ashar, um, which means to be straight, or in the widest sense, to be level. Um, Asher means, oh, how happy. So blessed is, oh, how happy is the man. Uh, So that's how the passage could read. Oh, how happy is the man who walks not. Man, by the way, in this case is all men and women. Who walks not, this is, does not follow. Um, And walks is to, to go along with. In the council, that's viewpoints or opinions in how we ought to resolve something of the ungodly. And this is the opinions of those that want nothing to do with God. And we as Christians, we ought to avoid this kind of counsel, lest it lead us astray. Rasha is the Hebrew word for morally wrong or actively bad and condemned person. That is someone not with God. So, nor stands in the path. So this is stands from walking in the path, one becomes more firmly planted in the way of the ungodly. You notice how it's a more firm position against God at this point. And the path is where we begin to fall into the ideals of what the culture might have us believe. Of sinners, that's kata, is the Hebrew word meaning one accounted guilty. Nor sits in the seat, and that's the Hebrew word yashab. It's the Hebrew word that uh, to properly sit literally and implies to dwell or settle so the idea is that if you sit in someone's seat, just like the idiom, or, or the other one would be walking in my shoes. It's you want to act like that person um, of the scornful. And this is Hebrew. The Hebrew word is lutz. Um, it's used again um, later, but it means to make mouths at um, or mock. So how might we notice if someone is scoffing at the Lord? This is the application. It's when they blatantly attack God or his word, or his people. It's also when they reject his word, or uh, when they just simply become lackluster toward it. So then are we also scoffing at the word when we become lackluster in our expression of it? When someone asks you about God's word in a public setting, what's your reaction? Are you afraid to talk about it? Or do you boldly exclaim what you believe? Are you ashamed of it? Or do you boldly go um, and talk about what you believe? Psalms 1, 2. So, but his delight is in, and it could read, but if his delight, um, kephets in the Hebrew is, it means a valuable matter which is desired or pleasant. It also means to be inclined toward strongly. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. So this should, this should be the object of our delight, the Lord, that is. We've learned from Pastor Ben recently that the law is the Torah. So the, the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, or the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Um, day and night is another idiom, which means literally regularly or consistently. So we're not doing it throughout the entire day, and then also throughout the We do have to sleep. So it's, it's an idiom That means to be consistent um, on this. And then to meditate on God's law 
is to think about how or when or where we can apply it to our lives. And it could also be to read it, to hear it, or to study it regularly. Psalms 1.3, and he shall be like a tree. So let's talk about trees. I think it's fair to say that we can all see that this is a metaphor. Um, we can't be trees. This isn't Lord of the Rings. We can't be <laughs> the talking trees. So trees have what that holds them to the ground? Roots. Roots, that's right. And usually the bigger the tree, the deeper those roots. Not only that, but the longer a tree grows, the stronger it becomes. And if, if you compare, for instance, the houses of today, those of you builders out there, uh, versus the houses um, even just 100 or so years ago, you know that the old growth lumber, the ones with tiny, tiny little rings on the end of the um, two by fours are wildly stronger. And, and those pieces of lumber that are still in houses today will actually far outlast the lumber currently being used to build houses now. It also takes time to grow a tree and, and mature it, just like it does to grow and mature in the word or even in, in scripture memorization. We can't all be Pastor Isaac who can just memorize it like that. I'm so jealous. So planted by the rivers of water. I found it interesting that the verb here, planted, actually means to transplant in the Hebrew. And it's this right here that's exactly why it's extremely important to exposit the word. We have to dig in and find out exactly what these words actually mean and what, what they meant in the context of how they were written and who wrote them and who did they write them to. Um, so the fact that it says, that it really means transplanted, um, it has some pretty big implications because it hearkens to our salvation. When we become a new version of ourselves, which is where we draw the correlation from Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, where we're no longer the old man, we're a, we're a new version of ourselves in the Lord and a much better one. So we've moved out of one kind of environment and we've anchored ourselves to a, a better new one. So why would the tree be transplanted uh, near rivers of water? So there's a, a much higher likelihood of the survival there as it has much easier access to proper nutrients that are essential to living or bearing good fruit. So that brings us to the next line that brings forth its fruit in its season. So the word fruit is to bear the power of the gospel. And I get this from Colossians 1, 5, and 6. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. So the moment that you converted to Christianity, you started the preparation phase for your fruit bearing. That's that sanctification process. So that brings forth fruit in its season. So what exactly is the fruit and how much of it will we yield? And I'm certain that it's probably going to look different for everybody. Not everyone's called to be a pastor and not every evangelist is called to be an elder. Um, some will use musical gifts. Some will use gifts of engineering or building or crafting or parenting. 
If, if you guys have spent any time with my wife, you know what I'm talking to about when I, when I talk about parenting as a gift. And its season is simply when the time is right for each individual. So this implies that we better be prepared because opportunities will start to become available. And if you're not there to abide in God's call for you, then you might miss these opportunities. Whose leaf shall not wither. So this here is to be alive in God's word, that we don't become stale or lukewarm in our walk with Christ. This is that steadfast love and the commitment to God's word. And whatever he does shall prosper. That is, whatever a man does or woman with the constraints of God's will for him shall yield prosperity. And this kind of prosperity could show itself in many different ways. Primarily, this means in spiritual prosperity, but it could also mean physical, mental health, happiness, good relationships, and and fellowship, and even financially. You put yourself right with the Lord, and he can bless you as he pleases. So Psalm 1-4, we take a turn here. The ungodly are not so, and they are indeed nothing like the godly. There's This is the stark contrast that I was talking about earlier in every way imaginable. They have loose morality and they have gods aplenty in the culture. But are like the chaff which the wind drives away. This was one of the most interesting parts of of this is being uh, basically two to three years new to truly digging into the word for me I, chaff is something I wasn't necessarily familiar with uh, before studying for this sermon, so um, I did some studying on that. So the chaff is the newly torn seed covering debris. So you have the, the wheat in the fields, and then you have a seed, and then you have an exterior layer which um, is full of nutrients, and then you have another protective layer around that seed. And that part they call the husk. So it's actually not called the chaff while it's on the seed. And so it does serve a purpose. And it's protecting the seed from physical damage, from sun damage or disease. So then it, when it turns into debris, only after being ripped off the seeds, that's when it's called the chaff. And so what farmers would do is they would take the grain and they'd rub it between their hands like this. And all of the seeds would fall and the chaff would just blow away, just wither away like that. And the funny thing is, is this, is, this is something that God chose to say here, which the wind drives away. The chaff is absolutely useless after it becomes chaff. There's, the, the emphasis is that it's useless. There's no purpose for it. And that's how we are comparing uh, the ungodly. That's a hard thing to, to, to read. The wind here depicts that it's easy for God to send us off as the chaff if we decide not to be in relationship with him. As it's for the farm, it's as easy as it is for the farmer to send off the chaff. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. And this, this part was a little bit hard to understand at first um, because we will all be judged. So what does that mean? So the Hebrew word kum means to endure. And that's stand. So endure is a word you could use there uh, in, in substitution so that 
it's easier to understand. So you could say instead, the ungodly shall not withstand the judgment. So it, it might be better described in the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22, 11 through 14. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. He wasn't supposed to be there. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. So we move on after the judgment to nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So those without God are destined to be without him for eternity. They're going to be set apart from him forever. They don't get the privilege of standing forever in communion with our holy savior. This is a big warning. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Hebrew definition for the word know is yada, and it has a huge list of words that are used in many different ways. And it doesn't mean that we get to willy-nilly pick um, from an expansive list of different words to suit our own personal prerogative here. Rather, we need to figure out in which way was the word used within its context by the writer. This word can be used literally, figuratively, euphemistically, or inferentially. In this case, it was literal. So salvation in the day of judgment is what is meant by the word known. Uh, we glean this from the antithesis we find in Matthew 7, 23, where he says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The ungodly perishes because they live of the world. They live to get as much out of this you only live once kind of life. They live for their flesh, for their desires, to have control over themselves and others or things. They live for power, they live for greed. We could go on, but the point is it's meaningless. It's a meaningless kind of life that stands no chance of unity with Christ when that day comes. So Psalms 1 is, uh, in closing, it's a chapter that serves as both a beautiful promise and a stark warning. There's two different paths that we have the free will to take, a God-given free will. The one in eternal holy communion with our Father or the one spent in eternity set apart from God. So if you're here today or you're watching the live feed, and you haven't committed your life to Christ, then I'd personally suggest that no time is better than the present. If you're a believer and you've somehow steeped yourself into sin, then I encourage you to act swiftly with repentance. Repentance is no joke. And guess what? It feels way better when you can pull that weight off of your chest. No burden is heavier than that of shame or guilt. So don't be afraid of the repercussions of repentance in this life because you know of the promise in Jesus Christ in eternity. So Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for what your son did for us on the cross, where he gave us new life, that he took sin away as, as something that is, that is his burden to bear. God, but I pray that there are so many that all of us here know in our regular everyday lives at work, at home, um, friends, school, that don't know you yet and I emphasize yet. God, I pray that, that we as a church would not be afraid in any way 
to, from the hilltops, be completely unafraid to talk about who you are, God, to talk about your character, to talk about your love for us. Lord, I pray blessing on the church family here as they go on the rest of the week. And um, thank you for the opportunity that it is to, to share your word. In your name, amen.